All right, how's everyone doing? For those of you who don't know me, my name is Hannibal, and I want to welcome you all to Wheaton Bible Church. Well, for those of you that are here worshiping with us in person, um, those of you worshiping with us online, we are so glad that you have chosen WBC to be the place where you are today. Before um, giving space here to the scripture, uh, I just got a quick, super quick announcement. As some of you guys heard, we were planning to do a parenting seminar for this month. Um, uh, for some reason, we, this is not a good season for many parents to actually join us in this. Um, but because we value our children, and we believe that one of the primary responsibilities to, uh, for parents is to disciple their children, we are not going to cancel this event. We're just going to postpone it and find uh, a better time uh, for parents to be able to join us and for us to be able to help you in your journey with your kids. Amen? So we're going to keep you posted. Uh, just keep your eyes and ears open. Today, then, we continue with our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and one of the things that I said during, uh, during as we were collecting offering is that uh, we really want you to be obsessed with Jesus. Like, I mean, we're not even hiding it. <laughs> we're not even hiding it. Like, if you come to this church, we do want you to be obsessed with Jesus. And part of the reasons why we want you to be obsessed with Jesus is because of the text we are looking at today. The text is going to show you that there's nothing better, no one better, more secure, more reliable, more beautiful, more satisfying, more trustworthy, more perfect, more everything than Jesus Christ. And we know that because right in the heart of the text, you find verse 8. And it says that when the disciples looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. My intention today then is uh, is to help you answer the question, why is it that Jesus should be at the center of everything? Why is it that Jesus should be at the center of everything? And I want to offer three answers. Number one, because no one except Jesus is the glory of God. Number two, because no one except Jesus is the only way. And number three, because no one except Jesus is the pleasure of God. No one Except Jesus. No one except Jesus. No one except Jesus. Thank you. You guys know by now that if this relationship is going to work, you have to participate, church. Let's go with point number one. No one except Jesus is the glory of God. I think that... A one good verse that helps and sets the tone for this text is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Look at what it says about Jesus. He says that the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. You know what that means? That it is impossible for anybody to truly know God, understand God, and live for God if we don't believe, understand, and trust Jesus. Because Jesus is the exact representation of God the Father. He has the same essence, the same nature, the same substance, and the same character of God the Father. We don't get to separate God the Father from God the Son. The God the Son is exactly the same representation of God the Father. The glory of God. Now, I want to make the argument that part of the reason why we have Matthew chapter 17 
is because Matthew wants to convince us that that is true. Actually, I think that part of the reason why we have Matthew 17 is because if you're not a believer just yet, you need to pay attention to what Matthew 17, because Matthew 17 is going to make that argument. And actually, I want to say that if you are a believer already, it doesn't matter if you are a believer for a year, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years, Matthew 17, you still need because you and I are still struggling with truly believing that there's no one better than Jesus. Let me say it again. You and I still struggle believing that there's no one better than Jesus. And I'm going to make my point super clear as we go through this text. Let's go to verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, three of the 12 disciples, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, if you know anything about the New Testament and the relationship that Jesus had with the disciples, you probably already know that these three guys, these three fellows, these three men, uh, are kind of the, the leaders of the leaders. They play a very important role in the life of, and ministry of Jesus, and they play a very important role in the life and, the, and church history. Actually, the book of Galatians talks about these three guys as pillars of our faith. So it's not just randomly God, Jesus choosing the people that he liked the most. It's Jesus choosing these three men because these three men will play a significant role in God's ministry, um, in Jesus' ministry and his plans. But the reason why I, I highlighted the word mountain is because the fact that this is happening in a mountain is extremely significant. Now, I don't think that the word mountain will be one of those in which you read in your Bible and you highlight just because. No, no, no. But when you read the Gospel of Matthew, you, if you really pay attention, you will see that mountains in the Gospel of Matthew are important. So and so important that some of the most significant things we find in the Gospel of Matthew, we see them on mountains. So, for example, when Jesus was being tempted by the devil, the devil takes him to a high mountain where he could see the kingdoms and the glory of the world. That's Matthew chapter 4. Another mountain we find in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. This is when Jesus is teaching his disciples what it means to be a Christian. This is the sermon and the mountain. I hope you know why. When you go to Matthew chapter 15, we see Jesus performing miracles. He's feeding people on a mountain and healing people, healing the multitudes in a mountain. When you go to Matthew chapter 24, Jesus, uh, this is the Mount of Olives, and this is when he's giving his teaching about the second coming. And of course, the most famous of all is Matthew 28, when we find the Great Commission. Did you know that the Great Commission was given in a mountain? Now, why is that so important? Is it because Jesus is upset with, obsessed with mountains? Is it because the disciples like to go hiking? Like, what was the issue here? Well, I want to make the argument the part of the reason why we have the word mountain there and the word mountain is repeated so many different times in the Gospel of Matthew and every single one of those are important things is because whenever you see the word mountain in the Gospel of Matthew, you really have to pay attention because something magnificent is about to happen. Something magnificent is about to happen. Something that will change the history of the world. 
So what happened? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 2. There he was, Jesus. There Jesus was transformed before them, the three disciples. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Now, the word transfigure can be translated in two different ways. It could be translated as changing. He changed, literally changed, or was transformed. Now, it tells us that Jesus is there having a conversation with these three guys, and something happened in which this shiny, radiant light came out of him. It's not that it came from outside, but it came from within. One of the scholars would say that we see in Jesus a self-producing, self-sustaining, and self-projecting light. So something unique is happening in this mountain in which Jesus starts to shine. Now, if you and I were there, that would scare the lights out of us. I want you to keep that in mind because that's, that's exactly what you're going to see later on. But what I want you to see, though, is that this is not the first time that you, that you see something like this in the Bible. And there's a reason for that. Actually, you could see something like that in the book of Exodus in two different occasions. In which we have something like a light, something like a cloud, something like shiny stuff happening. So, for example, in Exodus chapter 13, right after God is delivering, or he delivers the Israelites from the slavery of Egypt. You guys remember, they go in through the wilderness. And as soon as they get in through the wilderness, the Bible says that a pillar of cloud during the day was leading the Israelites. And a pillar of fire at night was giving them light and keeping them warm. This is interesting. That pillar never departed from the Israelites. That light, that shiny thing, that cloud stayed with God's people all the way until he delivered them. Now, part of the reason why that's important is because that shiny thing, that cloud, that radiance was an expression of the presence of God, the, pro the protection of God, and he shows God as a freedom fighter. So you got to keep that in mind. There's another instance in which we see something similar to what we see in verse 2, which is in Exodus chapter 24. And if you know anything about your, 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 the, the history of the Israelites, this is the part when Moses goes to the mountain, another mountain, Mount Sinai, and six days later, you guys remember verse 1? Six days Six days later, this cloud comes, and God reconfirms his covenant with his people. Once again, God is telling his people that he is a God of covenants, not a God of contracts, but a God of covenants. And that his covenants, because he's not a contract, are unconditional covenants. You know what that means? That when God promises something, he never breaks his promises. And you know what it means to have a God of covenants? That he will do whatever it takes to accomplish his purposes. Now, just to give you an illustration about that, I don't know how many of you guys enjoy the movie uh, The Avengers. Any of you guys? How many of you guys hate that movie? We could pray for you. All right. <laughs> in The Avengers, you have this uh, scene in which um, Tony Stark, which is Iron Man, um, they're about to confront this powerful enemy. And he says something really interesting for a hero to say. He says, I pledge up 
I pledge up to $1 million of my private wealth and up to one year of my time to defeat the enemy. And all of us, he will be like, oh, thank you. But then he says this. But if he requires more than that, count me out. And I'm watching this and I'm thinking, what a lame hero. <laughs> His commitment is conditional. I'm going to try this much, but if it doesn't work, I'm out. Thanks goodness. Under the influence of the spirit, quote unquote, the writers of the movie did not finish the movie there. Because then you see all the Avengers coming together, willing to defeat this enemy, and they say, they, they use this expression, whatever it takes. That's a covenant. By the way, that's the reason why when we got married, we made a covenant. Not a contract, just in case. Whatever it takes. By the way, when we become members of the church, we have a covenant. Not a contract. Whatever it takes. By the way, no, just leave it there. <laughs> so that's significant because the God that we see in Exodus 13 and 24 is a beautiful, perfect, and amazing God. Now, here's the question. What is the relationship between Exodus 13, Exodus 24, and verse 2 in Matthew 17? Okay, how many of you guys want to know what the connection is? Please raise your hand. I'm not going to tell you just yet. <laughs> because you got to keep on going with the text. If I explain it right now, then I'm going to ruin the whole thing. you got to keep on reading, and then you look at verse 3. It says, just then appear before them, Peter, James, and John, Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus or talking with Jesus. Now, I don't know if you find that weird, but I find it weird when dead people show up in the scene. That's weird. And you know what makes it even more weird? When you're talking to dead people. You guys remember the movie, I See Dead People? That's why that's only a movie. Because it's creepy. So you got to ask the question, what is that Jesus was talking to these guys about? Now, the Gospel of Matthew doesn't tell us what they were talking about. But the Gospel of Luke tells us that they were talking about the cross. That they were talking about Jesus' death. So you got to ask the question, why is it that Moses and Elijah are there? Now, this is important for us to know. Moses represents the, the, the law part of the Old Testament. And Elijah represents the prophet part of the Old Testament. Now, that is going to be significant as we walk through this text because it seems to be like Moses is representing all the law and, and Elijah is representing all the prophets. Now, I already told you that this had to be like a powerful, scary event. Actually, the text tells us that it was so scary that Peter doesn't know what to say. Matthew doesn't say it, but the Gospel of Mark says it, that he, did know what, he didn't know what to say. You know what that means in our translation? He's about to say something dumb. <laughs> and he did. Like a good Peter. He says, it is good that we are here. How about it be built a tent for you guys? Now, what is interesting is, though, that Jesus doesn't correct them there. But the narrative continues. 
Now, look at what happened in verse 5. While he, Peter, was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is the second time God the Father speaks on behalf of Jesus. You guys remember the first one? In his baptism. Actually, God the Father says something very similar. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The only difference between the first event and this event is that he adds the sentence, listen to him that much. Which, by the way, the word listen is to obey. Now, if you're a parent, you probably understand that. There you go. You know the difference when you tell to your kids, listen to me. You don't mean like just really pay attention. It means just obey. That's kind of what God is doing here. Now you got to ask the question. What is the relationship between verse 2 and Exodus chapter 13 and Exodus chapter 24? What is the relationship between verse 2 or, or verse, the rest of the verses and then the conversation that Jesus has with Moses and Elijah? And why is it so significant here that God the Father is speaking in these terms? In regards to Jesus. All right. So how many of you guys want to know? Please raise your hand. I'm not going to tell you just yet. <laughs> Part of the reason why I cannot tell you just yet is because then you're going to miss the whole point. So here you have these three men that are witnessing all of this stuff. And you got to keep in mind that this is not a regular thing. This is not what normal people go through. And then you have Jesus that's being transfigured. And his face and his clothing is shining like the sun. And then, then two dead people show up into the picture and they're having a conversation with Jesus. And then they hear this crazy thing from, from God the Father from heaven that they could clearly hear. What would be your reaction if you're there? Like... How would you react if you are there? I tell you how I would react. That would really, 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 really scare the lights out of me. I will go number one, number two, and number three. If you don't know what number three is, that's up to you. <laughs> and that was exactly the reaction that Peter and the disciples have. Look what it says in verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, and they were terrified. Now, what is interesting about that verse, though, is that it shows Two different behaviors at the same time. You know, the face down thing, that's an attitude of worship. So it seems like if Peter, James, and John recognized that the presence of God was there, that God was there. And their natural inclination was to worship. You know why? Because when the presence of God is there, you always worship. But the second reaction, automatically, is fear. I want to invite you to consider that if you are a believer, 
those two things are inseparable for you. That if you are only afraid of God, you don't know God. And that you're only interested in worshiping God, but you're not afraid of him, you don't know God. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. And yet it's so beautiful and amazing and perfect that the most natural reaction is to worship him. So here you have these three guys doing the very thing, the most normal thing that anybody that encounters God will do. Now you got to ask the question, why did Jesus go through all of that? Why did God allow all of this? Why all these things are taking place? And now we get to understand why. Verse 8. When the disciples looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. So here is the explanation. All of this stuff was happening to point to Jesus. Have you ever been in a theater in which you got a lot of people and then you got the spotlight and just one person? What is the purpose of that? To elevate that person. To point to that person so everyone's attention is in that person. And here we have the clouds and the light and the shining and the glory of God. And here you got Moses and Elijah and all these conversations. And then you got the voice of God saying what he says. And then all of that disappears and you got one image alone. Jesus alone. Why is that there? Hear me out, church, because if you miss this, you miss the entire church. The, the entire church, the entire text. This is the point. Ready? You got to say ready. ready. I'm going to give you four things. The whole purpose of this thing is for us to know and believe that there is no one except Jesus that is the ultimate presence of God, the ultimate protection of God, that it is Jesus, the one that is a freedom fighter, that whatever happens in, in, in Exodus chapter 13, Jesus fulfills. That no one except Jesus can bring you into the presence of God. That no one can protect you except Jesus. That no one will fight your fights except Jesus. And if that is true, and it is, why are you resting in other things? You know, what you have can protect you. You know that. The government cannot protect you. You know that. The army cannot protect you. You know that. They sort of do, but not really. Even if someone can protect you from the enemies outside, no one can protect you from the enemies within. Even if you feel secure and you don't have problems, sickness is still get to you. And the text is an invitation for us to see Jesus as the ultimate presence of God. The ultimate protection the ultimate uh, freedom fighter. No one but Jesus. No one but Jesus. Number two. The text shows us that no one except Jesus is the God of unconditional covenant. This is part of the reason why the cross is an expression of the love, covenant love of God. 
This is why when we participate in communion, we are remembering the covenant of God, the new covenant of Jesus. And if that is true, and it is, you really, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, or you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you really don't have to worry about God walking away from you, you know? Like, you really don't. Now, I want to stress that point because I really believe that even if you have been walking with Jesus, you still feel that God can walk away from you. That's why when you sin, the last thing you want is to come to Jesus. Because still deep down inside, we believe that God will not be faithful if we are not faithful. By the way, that's religion. That's not Christianity. Our God in Jesus is a covenant God. Paul says that he remains faithful when we are unfaithful. Number three, no one except Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. That's Moses. And no one except Jesus is the ultimate prophet. So everything that was required for your salvation, everything that God required of you, Jesus already fulfilled. No Moses, only Jesus. And that if you want to hear the voice of God and want to know what God thinks of you and what God expects of you, you don't need any other prophet. You need the voice of Jesus. That's why Hebrews chapter 1 says that in the past, God spoke through, through our prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken by his son. Now, let me stretch for a second because if that is true, if it's true that Jesus fulfilled the law, you should never be controlled by the fear of coming to Jesus even when you have messed up. See, I actually think then that many of us still struggle with thinking that we're supposed to fulfill the law in order for us to be accepted. And I'm going to make my point. And I'm going to require participation, okay? Okay? Thank you. Let's say that you have a really good week. What I mean by good is that you read your Bible, right, and you pray, and you came to church, and you served, and then you gave money, because that's like the ultimate, you know. <laughs> and then you, 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 you treated the people that the Lord has given you, like, really well. You were nice, you were gentle, you were patient. You displayed all the fruit of the Spirit, man. Like, you were shining like Jesus shining in the mountain in the transfiguration. And on the way to church, inside, you feel really good about yourself. Like, man, that was a good week. I deserve to be in the presence of God. And you worship like if there's no tomorrow, man. Like, this is how I know that you struggle in your week. Because when you don't sing, that means that you've been struggling. When you, when you sing, it's because you think that you fulfill the law. The following week, though, is a really bad week. And your singer gets hold of you. And you did the things that you haven't done in a while. And you're disrespectful to the people you love. And you're not gentle. 
And you don't care about anybody, and you don't serve anybody, and you don't love anybody. You don't read your Bible. You don't do any of that stuff. But you got to come to church. And as you drive over here, you still feel that you're not accepted by God. How many of you guys have gone through that? You know why we struggle with that? Because we are yet to believe that Jesus fulfilled the law. It's not up to you, church. It's not your obedience. It's not whether you had an amazing week. And it's not if you had an awful week. At the end of the day, the only reason why we can come before the presence of God is because Jesus fulfilled the law. He lived the life that no one has lived, and he died the death that we all deserve. Therefore, we have wide entrance into the presence of God. That's why we have Matthew 17 here. Not Moses, not Elijah, only Jesus. Number four, no one except Jesus is the true and the ultimate son of God. The one that he loves and the one in who God the Father finds pleasure. That's what the word please there means. So I got to ask the question, and I'd ask, let me make a statement. If God the Father, if God the creator of the universe, the self-sufficient God, finds pleasure and joy and delight in his son, do you actually think that you can find that in, in another person? Can you find that joy and delight and pleasure in something outside of Jesus? My struggle, and many of your struggles, is that we're still looking for something that we can only find in him. Your body is not going to be enough. Your vacation is not going to be enough. Your job is not going to be enough. Your health is not going to be enough. Your family is not going to be enough. Your friends is not going to be enough. Your accomplishments is not going to be enough. Your retirement is not going to be enough. There's only one source of joy, one source of pleasure, and one source of delight. And that is only Jesus. Church, he is the end of all of our means. you got to ask the question, why is it that people sometimes lose it all? And they still experience joy. Why is it that people lose it all? Lose health, lose jobs, lose everything. Why is it that Paul is a person of joy when he's in prison and he knows that he's going to die? Because they all have found something that we all need. Jesus and Jesus alone. He is the end of all of our means. Now, the problem with this message, and I'm going to move faster here because I want it slower than this one. The problem with this message is that it feels really, really exclusive. Right? Like if I say only Jesus in the, in the, in the modern times, that feels super exclusive. So that leads me to point number two. Let's talk about why is it that Jesus is the only way. So if you say that, 
then people will reject you because you are super exclusive. And I'm here to make the argument that the more inclusive, quote-unquote, religion in the world is Christianity. Is that when we have Jesus as the only way, that is the one thing that equips you for you to be inclusive with other people. Let me make the argument super quick. Did you know that it is because of Christianity that we have human rights? It's because Christianity believes that all human beings are created in the image of God and they have value and dignity, the reason why we have human rights. That's inclusive. Did you know that because we are Christians and Christianity exists, the only reason why the rich and the poor can hang around together. Different social classes can hang around together. Men and women can hang around together. People with different gifts and abilities can hang around, to, hang around together. Don't you think that that's inclusive? Because that's what the gospel does. Did you know that it is because the gospel that we can have a multi-ethnic church? It's because the gospel is inclusive. See, I could give you more arguments uh, about love, for example. Christianity is the only quote-unquote religion that has a really good definition about love. Because Christian love is not about me. Christian love is not what about, about, about what I want, what I desire, and what I need to fight for. Christian love is always, it always puts the other person first. Amen. Isn't that the reason why Jesus went to the cross? Great. How about if I tell you that Christianity is so inclusive that it redefines what it means to be a leader and it redefines what it means to have power. If the Lord has given you a position of leadership, that leadership is not for you. It's for the well-being of others. It's to serve others. If you have some sort of power, that power is given to you not for yourself, but to serve others and love others. Can you see why Christianity is exclusive? Because he says there's only one way, Jesus, and at the same time inclusive, because the doors are open to anybody that believes just that. Question. Actually, questions. How do we know, how do we make Jesus the center of our universe? How do we grow more and more into trusting that he's going to fight our fights? How do we grow more and more in trusting that he's going to be our protection even when our enemies are behind us? How do we learn to rest in his covenant love? How do we really live a life in which we know that he has fulfilled what the law required? How do we grow into delighting and finding pleasure in him? Point number three. No one except Jesus is the pleasure of God. So this is what I mean. You remember how I told you that when Jesus was talking to Moses and Elijah, they were talking about Jesus dead? Why? Why? And then when you read later on in verse 12, they're having this conversation about um, John the Baptist and Elijah and all these things. But right in the middle, Jesus says this. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And he's talking once again about the cross. So here it is, church. The way we grow into learning how to put in Jesus as the center of our universe is by never walking away from Jesus dead. You know why? Because at the cross, you can see that Jesus made you the center of his universe. 
He died for you. He loved you. He chose you. Not only at the cross we could see what you mean to him, but at the cross you could see what he was willing to do to love you, to deny himself, to humble himself, to live his glory, to be rejected, to be hated, to be crucified. Why wouldn't you trust his love? Why wouldn't you put him in the center of your universe if you were already the center of his? If you ever wonder if the God is really going to protect you in the midst of chaos and problems, why would you doubt Jesus' protection? Didn't he defeat your, your enemy number one already at the cross? Your sin and the devil and the condemnation of your sin. Why would you not trust that he's going to take care of everything else? Have you ever wondered if Jesus really, truly fulfilled the law? Can you see that the reason why he went to the cross was to fulfill the law? You know what the Bible says? That if we sin, we deserve to die. That is God's principle. If you sin, you deserve to die. What I find amazing, though, in the gospel is that the God of the law is the same God that becomes the sacrifice to die for the ones that didn't want him at all. Why wouldn't you trust that he fulfills the law and that you could always come before his presence? How is it that Jesus becomes our delight? When you are obsessed with him and obsessed with what he did. And that's why we participate in communion. So the Bible calls us to examine our hearts before participating in communion. If you are a believer already, this celebration is for you. If you're not sure about your salvation yet, if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, this celebration is not for you just yet. Believe, repent, and surrender your life to him, and then participate. Let's take there a few seconds. And I'm going to ask you to answer this question in the privacy of your heart. Is Jesus really the center of my universe? And if he's not, this is when you repent. Just take a few seconds, sir. going to ask you now to take the cup, remove the cover from the side of the cup where you find the bread. And before participating, 
I want you to think about the transfigured Jesus. The glory of God. The one that is worthy of worship and worthy of fear. And then I want you to see him nailed at the cross. You may participate. Now you can remove the second side of the cup. And I want you to imagine for a second the transfigured Jesus. The God of protection, the God of covenant love. The God that is always present, the one that defeats our enemies. The one that does whatever it takes for you the one that will never walk away and then see him shedding his blood you may participate Heavenly Father we are grateful for so many things about so many things about life we are grateful Lord because everything we are and everything we have is because of your grace but none of those good things can be compared to the best gift that you have given us which is your son the covenant son, the freedom fighter, the ultimate protector, the God of whatever it takes, the one that truly fulfill our longings, the one that lived the life that no one has lived and died the death that we all deserve. The one that won for us the adoption of God, the love of God, and the pleasure of God. Lord, who would have thought that if we have placed our faith in Jesus, you love us the same way you love your son, according to John 17. And that if we are in Jesus... When you look at us, you look us through Jesus. And therefore, you find delight in us. Please help us to listen to him. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And the church says. Amen, church.